I have a testimony I want to share with you because it's, it's a function of the message that we've been talking about the last three weeks. And for those of you that haven't been here, the, the last three weeks have been a conversation around it's really tough to be Christian, right? That, that the Bible teaches us with words like perseverance and endurance and holding fast, that we know that it's not easy to walk that narrow path with Jesus. And the, the maybe biggest challenge to our ability to walk with Jesus is the, the dealing with our flesh, right? So um, I play racquetball, and I play pretty regularly with, pretty regularly with a guy who's better than me. Um, he's really good. Um, we prob- I probably almost half the time I beat him, but he's definitely better than me. And he's the most competitive guy I think I've ever met. If, if, if he likes me, we're pals, he sends me text messages all the time, nice things. But if he could beat me 15 to nothing every game, he'd be happy. And, and if he could find some way for me to be like negative three, he'd be more happy, right? So I'm playing him yesterday morning, and he's really not playing very well. And I'm, I'm beating him pretty bad. And we had two situations where there was a dispute. Like I hit a ball, I thought it was a good shot, he thought it was a bad shot. Always, whenever that happens, we just play it again, right? He got really upset with me. And then another one was what you call a hinder, where, where if somebody's in your way, you don't just whack at the ball and clobber them with your racket. You hold up, and you call that a hinder, and you just play it over again. And he said, I wasn't in your way, and he got all upset, and it was crazy. So when we got done with the game, I went outside the court a minute, and I said, John, you've never known me to be someone that cheats. I mean, he sends me text messages telling me, I love playing with you so much because you don't cheat, because you're honest. You know, all these makes me feel good. A little bit of Jesus coming through me. But he was, he was like basically calling me a cheater. So we had a little conversation. He was very upset. I think because he wasn't playing well, and he's not a guy who typically doesn't play well. And as we're getting ready to go back in the court, I put my hand on his shoulder, and I reached my hand out to shake his hand. I said, let's go play. And he, he sort of half shook my hand. I said, John, that's not how you shake a man's hand. I know that's not the way you would do that. He said, I want to shake your hand. He said, I'll shake your hand when we're done. Like, wow, it's a stupid racquetball. So we, we go back in the court, and as we're starting to play the next game, I'm having thoughts. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Screw that guy. I am not shaking his hand because he's challenged my character. He's calling me a liar. Do you know what all that is inside my head? It's the devil. Seriously. It is the devil inside my head because the Holy Spirit started speaking to me as I was coming into agreement with, yeah, I'm not going to shake that guy's hand. And he said, you can't take offense. Look at what Jesus, look what my son did on the cross. He bore all the offense of mankind. You're going to take offense over a guy that doesn't want to shake your hand. And I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Thank you. I praise you so much for your Holy Spirit inside of me that leads me to all truth. See, but that's why it's hard to be a Christian. Is because the devil will use a person to prick at your flesh to get you outside of the Holy Spirit. But we have... God in us, the Holy Spirit, to testify the truth to us, then the tricky part is, which self are you going to put on? The old self or the new self? It was awesome. I mean, it, he was so frustrated. Matter of fact, he quit after the third game. And he was so frustrated. I had a particular serve that he, just, he was just having so much trouble hitting it. And I could tell he was getting so upset that he was going to start to mess himself up with God. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, quit hitting that serve. I'm like, 
man, you know, that guy wouldn't quit hitting a serve. He'd beat me 15 to nothing if he could. But the Holy Spirit had me hit a different serve because I don't own me anymore. He owns me. I'm here only for his purpose. And he doesn't want to see that man stumble and hurt himself in his relationship with the Lord over stupid racquetball. So when, when we talk about it's hard to be Christian, that's a test. And there was three different ministries that we talked about how we walk with Jesus through how we endure, how we persevere, how we hold fast. One is the ministry of God's word, right? The Bible teaches us and helps us. A second was the ministry of the body, right? Where we have each other to minister to us, to help to keep us encouraged and edified. And the third is the divine ministry of God himself as he speaks to us in our time of need as we're being tested. So that's my testimony. Um, I almost It was almost a not-so-good testimony, but because God is in us and with us and about us, it became a good testimony. And I did shake the guy's hand at the end of the third game when he quit after I beat the crap out of him. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. I don't really get to beat him up that bad. But uh, <laughs> And don't ever say crap in church. Repeat after me. Don't ever say that word again. Okay. For the next, I'm not sure how long, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. Today, we're going to start that conversation with four, um, I don't know, four keys, four concepts, four things that I think we need to understand and embrace if we're going to fully get this whole thing, this phenomenon, this, this gift of the Holy Spirit, or these gifts of the Holy Spirit that God offers to Jesus' church, which is us. First question that I would ask is, what are spiritual gifts? Not what are the gifts, but, but particularly what are they? And, and the answer to that question is tools. Spiritual gifts are tools. They're tools for a purpose, right? Somebody mentioned purpose earlier today. God, in his will, through his Spirit, enables his church with these things called spiritual gifts to accomplish purpose, right? We all have purpose as individuals within the body and collectively as the body of Jesus. So spiritual gifts are tools. And and maybe to look at what the purpose might be, I've got three scriptures I'll share with you. The first is from Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you, no, I tell you no, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let me just stop for a second and talk about these two, and then I'll read for you the next one. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is only available to those who repent. Repent, in, in its purest sense, means to change the way you think. In its, in its more full sense, it means that as you change the way you think, you change the way you behave. So you would repent in your thinking, worldly thoughts, unto kingdom thoughts, which would then drive the way you would behave and how you would understand and perceive things. So, The first couple of scriptures here about purpose for spiritual gifts is unto ourselves so that we can literally 
present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. The process of that happening is that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, no longer conformed to thinking the way the world thinks, but to thinking the way the kingdom thinks. Okay? All right. Another scripture that helps to define the purpose of spiritual gifts is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You know this as the Great Commission. Jesus, again, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he's basically commissioning his church. We are his church. The church is the body of Jesus. I'll probably touch this again today, but we need to remember that Jesus came fully God and fully man. It says in Philippians, I think it's chapter 2, that he didn't see it as anything to be accomplished to be like God, even though he was God. That he humbled himself to take on flesh. So Jesus, in order to regain the authority over this planet that mankind had given to Satan, had to come as a man. That's why he called himself the Son of God, and he called himself the Son of Man, right? He was, in his perfect life, a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. He regained authority for this place. It used to be mankind's authority. Adam and Eve gave it away. Jesus reclaimed it. So he didn't give us the authority. He allows us as ambassadors to operate in his authority. So in that context now, Jesus is about to leave and go back to heaven, and he's commissioning his church, which is now his body, right? Human body on this earth, Jesus as the head, Holy Spirit empowered to go about and continue the mission that was given to him originally by the Father. That's the context of what you're hearing now in what we would call the Great Commission. So Jesus says to us, his church, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in a really macro sense, spiritual, spiritual gifts are provided to us as resources, as tools for a mission. For, for our, our journey, as we become transformed from glory to glory to glory into the perfect likeness of Jesus, and for us as the body of Christ, as we go about doing this mission of making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all those things that he's commanded. You get it? You, do you get a sense for purpose? Because, see, if we don't understand who we are, and what our purpose is, then the, then the spiritual gifts only have the value of a sign. Right? One of the values of, of spiritual gifts is they're a sign. They're a sign for believers and they're a sign for unbelievers. If we don't understand that we are no longer our own, that we were bought with a price, the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ, and that we are now commissioned on a mission with God to go and seek and save the lost of this world, to destroy the works of the devil, then the only value that spiritual gifts really have is as a sign. And that's an awesome value, but it's way less than their purpose. They're a tool that God gives to his church in order that we might repent, that we might be transformed, that we might be encouraged and edified, and to us as a body to go about doing the works that he's given us to do. Amen? Amen. All right. So funny. I, I should just not have notes because I don't trust preaching without notes, but then I do it and I get lost. 
Yeah, I got found. Amen. <laughs> oh, let me see if I can't wind myself back in. Just go with it. I touched on this. We, we, we speak it in this declaration that we try to remember to do every Sunday. When Jesus says why he came, he, he gives two profound statements. And you, you could find maybe more reasons, but they, all of the other reasons tend to fall under the umbrella of these two statements. The first one is, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's us. We were lost. We were separated from God. We're the, we're the one out of the hundred that's gone away. And Jesus came that those lost, which was the whole entire world, might be found. The second reason he said that he came is to destroy the works of the devil. So the purpose associated with our lives now is his purpose. He said to the the disciples just before he ascended back to the Father, I think it's in John chapter 20, he said, as the Father sent me, Jesus speaking, so I send you. So when we look and wonder, what's my purpose in life? All we got to do is read some red letters in the gospel and we will see. Jesus came, they brought their sick and he healed them all. That's a purpose. Lost people found, sick people healed, tormented people delivered, souls healed, bodies healed, spirits restored to life in God. Jesus came. He accomplished his, I mean, he's still literally accomplishing, working on this task that brings all of the lost to be found and um, all of the works of the devil to be destroyed in that he's in heaven right now interceding on behalf of his church with the Father. I mean, it's, just a, it, it's hard for me to imagine how disciplined God must be to establish an economy. Um, I don't know if that's the best word. But he, he, he established an order that he won't break, right? So at the beginning, he created the earth, and then he, he formed Adam out of the dust, and from Adam's rib, he created Eve. And, and he said, you have dominion over this whole thing. It's your responsibility. Name all the animals. You run it. It's yours. And then they gave up that authority to Satan when they were deceived in the garden. And then all this time passes, and he sends Jesus. Now, God, being sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, could accomplish his will through his own straight-on divine power. Even Jesus could have come in the power, the divine power of being God and done things that he didn't do because it wasn't the way it was established by the Father. So now here you have the Father in heaven, his son Jesus seated at his right hand, their spirit in this earth, and what's literally happening is Jesus is interceding on behalf of the church to the Father. The spirit then being dispatched to do the Father's will, how? Through the church, isn't it amazing how God established a way that things are going to be done? And even though to us it would be like, well, you know, if I'm God, here's what I'm going to do. (laughs) You know, just undo it all and start again or fix everybody or whatever. But see, he never violates his own will, his own order, his own way. So if this world is going to be saved, and if the works of the devil are going to be destroyed, it's going to be because... Men and women who are the body, the hands, the fingers, the elbows, the nose, the ears of Jesus Christ himself are going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It just blows me away. Jesus gives us a picture. Actually, it's Paul, but it's the Holy Spirit through Paul in Ephesians 5. And he uses kind of this role of a husband to paint a picture for us. It's uh, Ephesians five twenty-five through 27. 
He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. I tell you all the time that the devil is, is his tool is deception and lies. And the way he tries to deceive us is in our identity. In telling us we're not what we are. Each and every one of you was created perfect. God never makes a mistake. He's not capable of making a mistake. He is so creative that however many billions or jillions of people that have been created, knitted by his hands in a mother's womb, since the foundation of this planet, since Adam and Eve, until whenever the last one is made, is different and unique. Why? Because he's creative and he likes it that way. You get born into this fallen world and sin, original sin is in you, a fallen nature is in you, and you do stuff that's contrary to God's will, but it never changes the perfection that God created that is you. It, it, it ickies it up, but that's what's happening here. Jesus is going to ultimately present us to himself as bride. Guys, I don't know how we really picture that in our minds, but you just have to go with it. It's scripture. He's going to present us back to himself. What's he going to give himself? That same perfect thing that God created in his mind before the foundation of this world. So all the mistakes, all the sins, all the whatever you did that the devil wants to make you constantly, make you constantly think about, that's spiritual warfare. We'll talk about that just a few more weeks when we get done with, with um, spiritual gifts. But that's where you've got to battle in your mind. That's when you say, well, I'm not shaking his hand because he's challenging my character. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 no. You can't take offense. Offense is just a spot and a wrinkle. Holy Spirit is working it out, working it out so that ultimately when he's done with this process, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to present me to him in the original, beautiful, perfect glory that I was created. And just the yucky bit gets washed off. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the bridesmaid, the, the, the attendant to the bride, while Jesus is back preparing a place for us. Hebrews 10, 4 through 10. <laughs> Sometimes I don't make any sense to myself, but it feels good. It really does. <laughs> Did it make sense? Okay, well, maybe by the end. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. Give us another perspective. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, he being Jesus, comes into the world, he says, this is Jesus now, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So Jesus came in the flesh. A body was prepared for him. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying that above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come. Now, Jesus, behold, I, Jesus, have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus... His part of the, of the equation was to take on this body that was prepared for him, to live a perfect, 
sinless life. Because the blood of boats and goats, goats and bulls, wasn't pleasing to the Father. It never made him happy. All these sacrifices that were established in the previous, which has been done away with, now that we have this new, better covenant that's not in the blood of bulls and goats, it's in the blood of the perfect lamb. See, no sacrifice was perfect. No matter how excellent that bull was or that lamb was, it had flaws. So in its flaws, it couldn't take away sin once and for all. Therefore, it had to be done again and again and again. When the Jews celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's literally what's happening is if there were a temple, the high priest once a year would go in and he would first make a sacrifice for his own sin because he wasn't the perfect high priest. He was a man with sin. And then what he would offer would be the very best that they had to offer on behalf of the people, but it wasn't perfect. So you had an imperfect high priest, you had an imperfect offering that could only cover sins but not wash them away until the perfect time came when Jesus said, I'll go do this, and he lived the perfect life so that he would be this lamb without any spot or wrinkle that could be sacrificed on behalf of all of mankind. But he not only was sacrificial lamb, he was perfect high priest. So he, he covered both ends of the equation in his perfect life. He, he, as high priest, offered himself as perfect lamb on the altar for God so that sin wouldn't have to be atoned for year after year after year. Once and for all, it was done. Now, his part of the equation is to intercede on behalf of his body next to the Father. We pick up the ball, so to speak, the ball, maybe you could even look at it as the Holy Spirit, and continue the mission until he returns. All right, now that I've totally trashed my notes, we're to the end of the first key. So the first key that I want you to get in your minds, I want you to think of them, when you see somebody giving a word of prophecy, or you see somebody... Um, uh, speaking in tongues and another one interpreting, or, or you see a miracle like a, a barren womb is opened up, or, or you see the gift of the discerning of spirits or, or miraculous healing, that they are here for a purpose. They're tools that God gives to his church for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost and destroying the works of the devil. Okay. Second key that I want you to understand in the context of spiritual gifts is that as a Christian, once, once you've confessed Jesus as Lord, once you've, you've come to that sincere place in your heart of faith that, that understands that he truly was 100% sin offering, nothing else required for you, your life ceases to become about you. And it becomes kind of about God in the expression of caring for other people. So the second key to understand spiritual gifts is that once you're saved, you're no longer about you anymore. And that's tough. I mean, seriously, the God of this world in our culture is me, right? Look at the TV. Watch the advertisement. No, don't look at the TV. If you, but, but if you have to and you notice a commercial, notice what they're doing. They're trying to appeal to you serving you. If you drink my beer, watch what happens. You're drinking somebody else's beer. You're all by yourself and you're drinking their beer and, and it's just not that good. But... If you drink my beer, look what happens. All the girls in bikinis will come. And they'll be your friend and they'll think you're handsome. And they'll want to drink my beer with you. Because you want to serve yourself. The the God of this world in our culture is me. But the God of the Christian 
is God the Father, God Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we express our love through him through sacrificial obedience, loving what he loves, which is other people. Holy Spirit gifts in that context. Now now you're thinking of yourself as someone that God would use, that the gifts are going to flow through you, are for the purpose of the well-being and the unity within the body of Christ. So if he gives me a prophecy, it's to edify and to encourage other people. If he gives you the gift of healing, it's to edify and encourage me as a sign that God is truly with us. So sacrificing ourselves as, as a vehicle that God can use to accomplish his will, gifts of the Holy Spirit being a tool for that purpose. Third key is this. Within the body of Christ, within the church, when I say Jesus' body and church, I'm saying the same thing. The building is not the church. See, there was a temple, but Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another in that temple that was in Jerusalem, and it came to pass. The temple was torn down, it was gutted. The temple today is the church. That's why we're church. We're the temple. The presence of God that, that was behind the veil in the temple in Jerusalem is now behind the veil of this shirt. He lives inside his church. He's the unifying thing that, that makes the body one. When we walk perfectly in the Holy Spirit, the body is perfectly unified. We are the temple of God. There are no superstars. There's only one superstar, and it's Jesus. And Jesus demonstrated his superstar characteristic by being the most humble person that ever walked this earth. By coming down off the throne, by coming out of that place of being constantly, nonstop worshipped, to taking on flesh. And humbling himself to the point that he was literally spat upon by people that his beard was pulled out of his face, that they mocked him and made a crown of thorns and jammed it down in his head, that he was beaten, his flesh was torn off his body, he had big spikes driven through his hands and through his ankles or his feet, hung on a cross naked, not with a little cloth around him, like, you know, because you can't do that on your Sunday play. He was naked, shamed in front of all of the world. There are no superstars. If you want to be superstar, your place is lowness, is washing people's feet, it's serving one another. Because if you're not careful in operating in spiritual gifts, you will get pride. If God is so gracious as to give you the blessing to pray for a sick person and see them healed, and you don't have humility, you could have pride. And if you have pride, you begin to separate yourself from God. You separate yourself from the body. And now all of a sudden, there's a part of the body that's not working properly because it's separated. And there's other parts of the body that can't be blessed and function properly because that part has taken itself out. There are no superstars. High standing in the kingdom is humility and lowness. The slave of all. 1 Corinthians chapter, actually 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read you all of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to stop at a few places. But now, now this is where, G, or where Paul starts to describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit, their purpose. And I want you to see those first three keys as you hear the scriptures. Amen? Amen. I will read you through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we start to really have this awesome conversation about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. First, um... 
verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Corinth was this, that's the letter. And, and, and in this particular part of the letter, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, he's actually responding to a letter that uh, the church sent to him about all these topics that they needed clarification on. You'll see maybe even four or five times in 1 Corinthians where the statement starts out, now concerning this, now concerning this, he's actually responding to their questions. So now concerning spiritual gifts, he says, when you were pagan, you had all these mute idols, all these things that you worshipped and you followed, but they had no voice, they couldn't speak, they had no power, because they weren't real, they weren't true. But no one, by the Spirit of God, can say Jesus is accursed, and no one, by the Spirit of God, can say Jesus is Lord. Now, we can say the words, Jesus is Lord, but you can't make the confession of Jesus as Lord unless the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, comes over you. So nothing kingdom, nothing heavenly spiritual is possible without the enabling of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 6 says twice that no one comes to the Son... None of us come to Jesus except that they're drawn by the Father. That's that special grace. To be able to come to the Son would be to confess Him as Lord and believe in our hearts by faith that He truly is Savior, right? It can't happen without the Holy Spirit. You can say the words, but you can't make the sincere confession unto salvation unless you have grace from God, which is the Holy Spirit. The setup of everything, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, verses 4 through 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one by the one spirit and to another the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues but one and the same spirit works all these things distributing to each individually just as he wills so this is a list not 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 a comprehensive list but an excellent list of the gifts of the holy spirit and what he's saying is that You might have this gift today, and you might have that gift, and I might have another gift, but they're all distributed based upon the will of the Holy Spirit. And what is the will of the Holy Spirit? It's literally the will of the Father. John 16, 13, but when he, Jesus is now talking about when Jesus goes, it's better for the church because Holy Spirit will come. So the anointing, the Holy Spirit that Jesus had, was one person in one place with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left... Holy Spirit would come, but he wouldn't come until Jesus left, and then the entire church would have that anointing. So instead of one man's two sets of feet going where he can go, you multiply, you multiply. On the, on the day the church was born, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added all at once. 3,000 more feet anointed by the Holy Spirit about this mission. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So he's hearing the voice of the Father. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. 
So the Holy Spirit is literally constantly surveying the mind of the Father. And as he surveys the mind of the Father, he enables the church to accomplish the thoughts. Jesus, when he was here, he said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I do only what I see the Father doing. He didn't speak words because he had something to say. He spoke words because the Father had something to say. The Father is orchestrating this whole plan of redemption for this world through Jesus by the Holy Spirit and now through us by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit isn't just on his own, deciding what to do. He is the only one that knows the heart, the mind of the Father. What are the thoughts of the Father so that I can turn on the church to accomplish his will? Even the Holy Spirit is submitted to the Father. We move on, uh, verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members... And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by, the one, or by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Corinthians 12 and never saw about drinking from one spirit. Do you know that you are made to drink from the Holy Spirit? Do you ever feel dry? You, you know what the, the solution to dryness is? Drinking, right? Would you all like to stop? Let's take a drink right now. Have you ever done this? Literally like pretend like, like you're drinking? It helps. I ask the Holy Spirit all the time, fill me, drink. It's like as you drink, Jesus said rivers of living water would flow from your innermost places. If there's nothing coming in, there's nothing going out. Well, there could be something going out, but it isn't what you want to get people wet with, Right? It's it's the Holy Spirit flowing into you, drinking. You are made to drink from only one spirit. So if you're drinking ever, like the devil was trying to get me to do in the Rackabout story, trying to get me to drink from a wrong spirit, it's not who I was made to drink from. There was no living water that was going to come out of me as I was fellowshipping with the devil in my mind till the Holy Spirit gave me a drink that said, no, no, you don't have to have that. You don't need to take offense. Jesus took that for you. How can you love this guy? How can you help this guy? Rivers of living water start to flow as you drink from that one spirit. Shabbatabadoo. Okay, moving on. Verses 14 through 26. For the body is not one member but many. Oh, it's so important that we get this. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. Let me just stop a second. If any of you have ever been like envious of somebody else's gift... If somebody has this amazing ability to prophesy or get words of knowledge and, and you become envious, you'll never be content because you were designed for your place in the body. You might be a mouth, you might be an ear, you, you might be a... I mean, you're kind of falling down on the job if you're a hair follicle up here. But you, your part is your part. And you can be absolutely content. You can be so fully satisfied when you be who God made you to be in the body. When you try to be who you're not, you can't ever find satisfaction because it doesn't work well. Now that doesn't mean that if somebody else has an amazing gift, maybe they're even a prophet to prophesy, that God won't use you to prophesy. Because all the gifts are for all the people as Holy Spirit decides in any given moment that you get to do a healing or you get to do a prophecy or you get to perform a miracle. The point is that that when you hear this, you have to understand that the very best place in the world you can be is your place, not somebody else's place. Okay, 
Um, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. See, that's the devil in your ear trying to get you to be dis- dissatisfied with the wonderful purpose that God has for you. That, that's actually me, not the scripture. That's why you can't find it on the screen. It is not for this reason any the less part of, the, of a body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. He doesn't make mistakes. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And on our less presentable members be- and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. So, if you find yourself in a place, maybe you're the sole of the foot of the body, and you feel like, man, that's just a, that's a rotten job. It's terrible that a person would feel like that because the rest of the body should be bestowing such honor on that person for the job that they have and be so grateful that there is a soul to the foot that that person should always feel exalted in whatever it is that God's called them to do. We'll get to that part at the end. Okay, um... Anybody remember what verse I was on? But God? But God has so composed... Thank you, you're so helpful. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. God puts you where he wants you. And he shaped you and he molded you and he dreamt about you so that you would be perfect in that place that he's designed for you. Verses 27 through 30. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So he's, he's showing the diversity of the body. And then he finishes with this statement, but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. So the the first thing out of all that is that we have to desire. He says in Matthew and again in Luke, ask and you will receive, receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened up to you. He says with regard to spiritual gifts, the same exact thing, desire spiritual gifts. When we, when we go on and we get into chapter 13 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you're going to see him start chapter 14 with the same thing. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially the higher gifts. Now the reason he wants us to desire the higher gifts, are because, and the higher gifts are defined as prophecy, and tongues, if there's an interpretation. Now, the, the personal gift of tongues is not a higher gift because it edifies only the, the one person. Gifts are higher gifts 
because they have a greater edifying effect on the body. So when a person speaks prophecy, it's God edifying the body and everybody can be encouraged by it. When God gives a message in tongues and somebody interprets it in a congregational setting, it's a higher gift because everybody can be edified by it. But then he goes on to say, all these things, all these gifts, you know, all these different parts of the body, all this stuff, it's so good that you should desire it, you should pray for it, you should ask, seek, and knock for these things. But I'll show you a more excellent way. And I don't think necessarily, this is true, but I don't think it's necessarily the, the heart of what he's trying to say. It is true that the more excellent way is the best way to operate in the gifts. But I think what he's really truly saying is that as excellent as all these gifts of the Holy Spirit are, as he surveys the thoughts of the Father and he enables the church to, to accomplish its purpose, there's a better way, a more excellent way of edifying one another. And that more excellent way is love. So I'm just going to go a little ways into chapter 13 and then we'll be done for today. Verses 1 through 3, the fourth key is that love is the most, most love is the most excellent way. The, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, actually, even love, you, you could very much argue, is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit. Because God's very nature is love. And he says all love comes from God. So if there be any love in us, it's because he gave it to us to release to somebody else. Almost argue it's a spiritual gift. Not listed that way, but I think so. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, right? The gift of faith, the gift of prophecy, to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. See, there's no superstars in the church, and gifts don't define the Christian. So if I'm a prophet, it doesn't define me as a Christian. If I'm a pastor, if I'm a, a miracle-working healer, that, that every time I pray for somebody, they get healed, it doesn't matter. It does not define me as a Christian. The Christian is defined by love. Jesus says in um, John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is not prophecy, tongues, interpretations, discerning of spirits, miracles, healing, faith. Those are all characteristics empowered by the Holy Spirit. The, the thing that d- defines a Christian is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was from love that he sent Jesus. It was from love because God defines love as obedience. Out of love for the Father, Jesus came, offered himself as the perfect sacrificial lamb. Understand all that stuff in the Passion Week, the the crown and the beard pulling and the spitting and the spikes and the, the flogging, all that kind of stuff was only part of the sacrifice. See, when the, when the racquetball guy disrespected me by calling me a cheater, Jesus already dealt with that. And part of the pain was he had to do it without sinning. 
So all the tests, all the trials, all the temptations, everyone that any man would ever have to deal with, Jesus had to deal with it first so that when we failed, we could still have a relationship with the Father. And he did that for love. It was all for love. Everything is for love. It's because God is so much love. It's not like, oh, God, you're so wonderful. I love you. It's like, no, I, God, love you. I'm going to demonstrate my love to you, and in response, you will love me. You never love God first. You only love him as a response to love. So when we talk more about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand that they're a tool, that there are no superstars, that we're not defined by gifts. We have to desire them and and, and sincerely ask God for the gifts of the Holy Spirit because it seems that that's the economy that he's established for us. And it has to be in love. You see, he says, if, if, I, if I prophesy and don't have love, I'm just a noisy symbol. If I, if I have the gift of faith and I could say to a mountain, move from there to there, the implication is the mountain will move. Outside of love, it doesn't mean the mountain doesn't move. It's just a lesser thing than if I have love. Okay? All right, let me close with this. In this world, there's a deception. And the deception is that God is a good guy and God likes good people. And because he likes good people, he's created this place called heaven where the good people get to go. And because he doesn't like bad people, he created this place called hell where the bad people get to go. It couldn't be further from the truth because every person will rationalize that they're a good person. And none of them are a good person. I mean, by our standards, you know, we can measure people. You know, Mother Teresa was a little better than Hitler. You know, easy for us to see that. But, but in God's standard of goodness, of righteousness, of holiness, they are, they, they're like this close together. If you can see, there's a tiny, that's the difference between Mother Teresa and Hitler. And then his standard for holiness, you can't even see it from Mother Teresa. It's so far away. And it's not that he's evil or he's mean or he's picky. It's just truth. It's just he is so absent of anything foul or nasty that even the very, very, very best person ever on this earth, their goodness is like filthy rags to his holiness. So it's not possible for any person in this fallen world to ever achieve a status of goodness that would get them to heaven. But the devil sows this thought, sows this thought. It's like, hey, are you going to heaven? Yeah, how do you know? I'm a good guy. Well, where's the line? Well, you know, the 51% and above get to go, and the 50% and below, not so good for them. But it's not the standard. It's not the standard. The standard is Jesus. Perfect holiness. The only way to go to heaven is to be found in his righteousness. Because he was perfect. Perfect lamb, perfect high priest, perfect man. None of us are that. If we want to have eternity with God, if we want to have such a purpose in our life that me wouldn't be the center of the universe, but serving others, serving God, and ultimately collecting our reward in heaven, it has to only be through Jesus. And the way that you get connected to God through Jesus is twofold. First is that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean, 
Now let me just explain lordship. In England, they would understand when I said Lord, that that meant master and slave. That, that Lord is king, and I am subject to the king. It's not Lord like, oh, Lord equals God, and I believe, Jesus, that you're God. Therefore, I've met that criteria. That's not it at all. The criteria is that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus would be the Lord of your life, that you would, you would transfer your will to his will, that you would die to yourself and live to Jesus. Now, that's a pretty high calling. I believe it's absolutely possible. I'm not sure that any person has actually ever done it. So it's not your perfect ability to serve Jesus as Lord. It's the sincere position of your heart to want to. See, when, when you confess Jesus as Lord and then you stumble, God doesn't look at the stumble. He looks at the heart. And if he sees the sincerity in your heart, the stumble doesn't matter. Even if you did it a hundred times, it doesn't matter. What he measures is the sincerity of your heart. The second criteria is that by faith you truly would believe that Jesus is your salvation. That you were separated from God, that you needed a Savior. You weren't a guy who was drowned in the ocean, this Pastor Jimism, that, that needed swimming lessons so that you could swim. You need a lifeguard. You need somebody to come save you. You can't save yourself. And that Jesus by his perfect life, by the manner of his death, by the fact that he was literally resurrected from the dead and ultimately ascended to the right hand of the Father, truly paid 100% the price for your sin. If both of those things are in place, then God sends his spirit to come live inside of you. And you are what we call born again. You're saved. You are in the kingdom. You are church. You belong to God. You get the, the, the blessed right to call him father. And he calls you son or daughter. I don't, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hand or to come forward. But you've got to know that you don't just follow somebody in a prayer and go to heaven. You have to literally die to yourself. That's why the Bible commands us to be baptized, that we would make this public profession of our new life that says, I died to myself, just as Jesus did, and now I'm resurrected as you come up out of the water, and my new life is found in Christ alone. If there's anybody in here, anybody in here, that hasn't made that sincere confession of faith and lordship, I say today's the day. And you can call me, you can call Teresa, you can ask anybody else in here to help you. God is drawing hearts. Remember I told you earlier that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit? And that nobody can come to the Son unless they're drawn by the Father. I believe with all my heart that there are people today that he is drawing to the Son through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay. Before we go home, if there's anybody that needs prayer, any sickness in your body, um, any sickness in your soul, you know, if your heart is aching, you have sadness, then come on up here or find somebody and be sure you get prayed before you go home, all right? All right. God bless you. Next week we'll talk more about the gifts. Amen?